Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 208 tonight. Uh, we're going to be discussing psychedelics and psychology with Dr. Rick Barnett. Uh, Dr. Rick Barnett is a psychologist and uh, addiction specialist, and I have the link down below if you're interested in his uh, his work with that. You can go check out that website. Um, before we get started here, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. For just $2 a month, you'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. Uh, we have a bunch of stuff up on there. So if you're interested in our podcast, we have exclusive content on there. And we have a lot of, if you're interested in psychedelics, we have a lot of psychedelic guests uh, as well on there. Um, and before we get started, one more time, head on over to indrasweb.org. This is the social media platform we created to connect open minds. So whether you're talking about uh, psychedelics, ancient psychedelic use, uh, if you have any hypothesis, theory, anything like that, it's the perfect place to discuss it. So head on over there and set up a profile. And uh, yeah, without further ado, welcome on the show, Dr. Rick. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I'm delighted to be here and chat with you for a bit. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so why don't you just give us a brief background of how you got into psychology and how then psychedelics kind of filtered into that? Well, it's a simple story. Basically, I have always been interested in the mind and uh, was exposed to psychedelics at a young age and realized there was a lot more to the mind than meets the eye, so to speak. And uh, I got a little derailed in my early uh, early childhood, my young my young adulthood, my uh, my teens got heavily into uh, alcohol and other substances, psychedelics being part of that, actually, I kind of went off the rails with using a lot of a lot of psychedelics at that time, gratefully was able to uh, get on the path of recovery from addiction and also get my uh, my education back online and went ahead and pursued a got my bachelor's degree in psychology from Columbia University and then went on to get a a doctorate from Furkoff Graduate School of Psychology and uh, all the while maintaining my recovery from addiction and staying very interested in addiction and uh, and uh, got a license in alcohol and drug counseling, started practicing in treatment centers in New York City and uh, moved back to Vermont. But, you know, psychedelics came back into the uh, into the field of mental health and, and addiction I think I realized it back in 2000 when MAPS was uh, was starting some studies with MDMA and PTSD, and uh, that was sort of on my radar. And then, of course, the last 10 years or so, really the last three or four years, where psychedelics really uh, has come back into public consciousness and really, you know, it's near and dear to my heart, both uh, from a personal standpoint, my own history with it, and uh, also professionally, having worked in the field of mental health and addiction now for years. And just so happy that there are these tools now coming back and uh, potentially, you know, helping millions of people. Yeah, that stuff's legal in Colorado now, isn't it? Decriminalized. 
decriminalized. Yeah, psilocybin's decriminalized in uh, Colorado and Santa Cruz, and even in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I believe, Maurice, and uh, mm -hmm. a few other places as well. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, we grew up similar thing. You know, we've talked a lot about it on this podcast uh, growing up. I think we started doing these things 15, 16 years old. And uh, I think we were probably self-medicating to some. I mean, I have severe OCD, which we've talked extensively about on the podcast, too. And I actually have used psilocybin at different points to kind of reset myself. So CBT would take hold a little bit more. And um, we've been pretty vocal about that because I think our policy has always been the more options, the better, you know, the more tools out there to deal with. Cause you know, there's a lot of mainstream stuff that doesn't always work for everybody. So you got to kind of mix it up sometimes, especially when you get into these funks. So, um, yeah, thank you for doing what you do. I think it's important. Um, I want to jump in here, uh, to some, some of the more interesting stuff of the mind before we get into more of the psychedelic stuff though. Um, which is, I was thinking about this the other day, since we've become the apex predators of basically the whole world and we manipulate and influence, uh, the earth as much as we can, obviously it kind of does its own thing sometimes. Uh, but, um, have we created too much space and time, uh, to think creating these psychological issues and addictions from possibly being bored or just having too much time on our hands? Well, we certainly have complicated things. You know, one of the things that the field of psychiatry and psychology has done, as you know, is we've we've categorized all kinds of mental health issues in these neat little packages. And everybody, you know, under the sun could probably open up this textbook of mental health disorders and and self-diagnose. And I've got this and I've got that. We, we, we do have a need for categorizing. We have a need for chunking things up and dissecting things and really understanding them. And I think there's something really powerful and, and healthy about that. And it, and it can get in our way as well. And when we start to create these labels and we, we make these complexities uh, in such a way that, uh, what I mean by complexities is that we, we make things complicated and then we get lost in all of the data and we get lost in all of the different things that we've created. I think that's what you're pointing to. Mm -hmm. And there's a real debate about that in mental health that, you know, how valuable is this manual that categorizes people or conditions the way they do when really we're all just bozos on the bus, so to speak. We're messy human beings and we come to the table, we come into this world with all kinds of different uh, idiosyncrasies and personalities and, you know, trying to force everybody into a box is uh, sometimes it's obstructive, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I was just coming from the standpoint too of like, we're not, we don't have any sort of predators necessarily after us and we're kind of our own worst enemies, you know, at this point with the way that we're so far advanced from pretty much everything else on, on the planet. And um, yeah, I just, like I said, I feel like um, I've learned to deal with that, meaning that when there's too much downtime or you're not doing something, you, your mind starts to wander and drift. And if you have something like OCD or ADD or something like that, you can kind of get into the, the weeds a little bit. But you're, I think you're right also is that we've created all these super specific categories and these things have probably existed forever just in different forms and nobody knew what they were called. It was just kind of how it was. But um, what do you think uh, going forward with the psychedelic stuff like what do you think um is the most 
uh, beneficial treatment actually on your end of things, which would be addiction? Like, what do you think's the, is there one specific compound or is it like an array of different things? Is there, but is there one thing specifically that you think helps addiction more than others? Well, when it comes to psychedelics, breaking it down into different molecules uh, to target different addictive disorders or conditions, it can get a little uh, get a little sticky there because really, if you boil it down to its essence, is that psychedelics are a great disruptor. They're a great disruptor for patterns of thinking, emotional patterns, social patterns, just uh, almost psychic patterns. The way we think, behave, believe, feel can be massively disrupted with with any one of these molecules, really. And so when you apply that to OCD, we, you apply that to depression or rumination, you apply that to anxiety, fear and worry, you apply that to some really unhealthy behavioral problem when it comes to a drug or sex or food or uh, gambling, then, you know, you apply these, these molecules, it's a great disruptor and there's a real potential to not rewire the brain, but really... Um, uh, open up new a new understanding and new perspectives that really have the potential to, I, I almost want to say permanently, but almost permanently or, or in various significant way, re, rework our perspective on ourselves. So they're great, they're great disruptors. You know, if you get down into it, um, really, there you know you can you can talk about ibogaine for opioid use disorder, which is. Uh, being studied and has been used for a while now. You can talk about the psilocybin studies with cocaine and with nicotine addiction that Matt Johnson has done and uh, Peter Hendricks down at the University of Alabama. And, uh, you know, you can get into specific molecules for certain addictions, but um, I think there's a, there's a massive generalization that's really helpful to think about in that way. Yeah, I was just curious because I feel like, you know, some people have like a spirit animal. I feel like I have my psychedelic compounds always been psilocybin. I've just always, it feels like home, you know, like it feels like I'm at home and there's some sort of peace I get from it. Maybe it's cause I used it when I was younger and it just kind of, you know, triggered me that way. But, um, yeah, I was just curious. And actually I wanted to ask you, you mentioned Ibogaine. I read a scientific paper where they created something called Tabernathalog, which was the compounds without the psychedelic component. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like the work is being done with the actual psychoactive psychedelic compounds, or do you think that there are compounds that can be used that have some sort of benefit that we're just not aware of that don't have some obvious, you know, physical um, effect? It's a great question. You know, it does bring up somewhat of a controversy in the field and you get into this sort of uh, perspective where on the one hand you can manipulate molecules and you can try to, reduce the uh, mystical or psychedelic effect and just make sure that you're still targeting some of the the receptors that may help with the change process and then there's other people who really believe like why would you want to do that like the whole mystical experience the whole uh you know different new consciousness emerging from these experiences like why would you not want that to be part of the experience and then to have all the integration that comes after that like whether you want to call it like I saw God or I had this experience where I really saw myself so differently and it was this mind blowing, mind opening, you know, serious perspective shift because of these these this this psychedelic journey. 
Um, why would you want to why would you want to take that out? So I, I try to stay somewhat nuanced about that. I, I see there's real value in manipulating molecules and seeing what we can do to sort of work with the uh, receptor systems that are being activated with psychedelics. And also, I, I'm a strong believer in the psychedelic experience. Mm -hmm. So having those mystical experiences, having those transformative moments and it doesn't happen for everybody you know some people can take psychedelics even large doses and they don't have mystical experiences um and they often may be disappointed with that but uh you yeah, know i've seen I a lot of people uh that discuss they don't real they don't know why they're not able to and a lot of them i've actually found from just talking with people and seeing people post stuff so a lot of these people are actually on ssris and um different medications that will actually uh inhibit that full experience too which um obviously you you need to take what you need to take and do what you need to do like i said didn't know one size fits all you need a bunch of tools but i i, I want to point that out because i feel like there's a lot of people out there that don't even realize that yeah no it's a good educational point if your listeners are are list are um maybe taking ssris or if they're uh taking other psychiatric medications uh in some cases there's some contraindications and certainly mitigating or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Minimizing the robustness of the effect of it's not like you can't take psilocybin with an SSRI. It's not as though there's a, a biological contraindication where you're going to go into shock or have some system meltdown or something. It's more like you said, it sort of inhibits the the full on effect of it potentially. And there's definitely good data with MDMA as well. MDMA is a different chemical in that regard and and the combination of SSRIs or SNRIs or other psychiatric medications with MDMA is usually not uh, a good idea. So it's good for listeners to be aware of that. And, you know, it's actually really difficult to conduct these studies on psychedelics, whether it's MDMA or psilocybin, because people are asked to mm. come off their medications. They've been on these medications for a long time. They may not be working great, but they're used to having it in their system and then coming off of it can be kind of a shit show. And there, and I think the withdrawal from SSRIs and some of these other compounds are, are vastly underestimated. And, you know, waiting two weeks to have it flush out of your system or a month isn't nearly enough, in my opinion. That's actually a really good point. I never even thought about that with, because these studies, I assume the people that are participating are people that have depression or anxiety issues or whatever the disorder is. And a lot of those people are on those. So I assume they need people that aren't on those to have the full effect or the data that they need for that, uh, that trial. Yeah. It, and it gets messy too, because, you know, there's all these exclusion criteria for this, this research. And I love the research. The, the research is the reason why we're having this conversation right now. So I, I, I hail the researchers and all the good work that they do. And also, like a lot of research, it doesn't map onto the clinical realities of the front line of, of practice, that, that people are taking psychedelics and, you know, at, uh, in different settings with, uh, with different other chemicals in their system. And um, so what we're seeing in, in the purified sense in these research studies is really valuable, how that translates into the real world once these molecules get approved. Um, that's a different story. So I'm curious to see how that unfolds. Absolutely. Uh, you actually brought up a good point about the mystical experience too. And I wanted to say that like, I'm huge on that. Like I've, the mystical experience for me is what helped me, um, deal with some of the stuff. I think people can put down the idea of, you know, metaphysics or some idea of a higher power or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I think that sometimes 
taking the load off your own shoulders and maybe being excited about some weird thing about the mind or uh, just being alive in general, I think can be super helpful and just being in awe of what this is and why we're here. And um, I think that that's super important to put into perspective sometimes. And I, I don't think that, um, I don't think just a compound uh, is, is going to do it. I think you need either to combine it with some sort of therapy mixed, you know, in with maybe, like I said, some sort of mystical experience or just some sort of sense of awe of what's, what's happening. Um, what do you think, um, where do you think this goes in the next five, 10 years in your opinion? What with, uh, are, are, are you going to have to be a psychiatrist if they do start, um, maybe, I don't know if more, more decriminalization or maybe even legalization in some, some parts. Um, do you think that there'll be, those will be specifically psychiatrists involved with that? Or do you think psychologists will be involved? Like how, where, how do you see that play out? You know, I see it as a multi, uh, it's a multiple pathway unfolding that we're, we're going, we're seeing, and we're really at the, you guys know this, we're really at the front end of this. It may seem like some of us have been doing this for a little while and it doesn't seem like the front end of it anymore, but the, the vast majority of sort of uh, people on the planet aren't having these conversations about psychedelics. So we're really at the very, very beginning. And there's multiple pathways, meaning there's clinical pathways, psychiatrists, psychologists, primary care docs, nurse practitioners, other health professionals getting involved and in offering like clinical treatments for this, right? In a, in a, in a, an approved legal upstanding kind of way, following protocols and stuff. And then there's the underground movement with decriminalization and potentially legalization. There's going to be a lot of other folks out there that are doing really good work with these molecules in, in a safe setting. Uh, there's going to be some bad actors obviously as well. That's that, that happens in the medical field as well, even with approved, uh, with approved medications and stuff. So there, there'll be some bad actors, whether it's in the in the uh, clinical world or the underground world. And then um, I do believe there's gonna be sort of widespread, more widespread recreational use without, without a real guide and without um, a clinical therapist or a clinical person to help people. And that's gonna be less helpful i think for some people but like you and i i mean i did psychedelics when i was first time when i was 15 and that mm. was a that was a my i'm not recommending it for 15 year olds but it was a it was a life-changing experience for me i i credit that with not only being a psychologist now today but also being able to get into recovery from addiction it was because of my experiences at 15 with with lsd so um you know i think that this is going to go many different directions clinical underground and then recreational use what are your thoughts on like uh decriminalizing all drugs um even like heroin and stuff like that so when people have problems they can come forth and they can actually go to a clinic and get legitimate substances and then you know try and work on a program to get them off that kind of stuff yeah my my views on that has changed over the last uh few years and i'm Definitely a big fan of decriminalization, and and to some extent, I don't think decriminalization goes far enough. And that's what you're sort of alluding to, Maurice, is that if you can get a prescription, if you can get pure cocaine, pure heroin, pure drugs, and you know it's a legitimate source and it's legalized, um, that's probably a better approach, certainly better than the war on drugs. 
And it might even be better than decriminalization because decriminalization doesn't necessarily um, solve all of the issues when it comes to um, uh, illicit drug use. It's still going to be illegal. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be decriminalized, which means there'll be it'll be the lowest law enforcement priority. People will get fined, slap on the wrist. But what about the product people are getting under decriminalization? It's still not clear if that would be a, you know, if it would be cut with fentanyl or something else. So I, I've kind of evolved to a much more liberal standpoint on that myself. And I think decriminalization is a good first step, but I think we're, we should head more towards a legalization model. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think uh, there's also so many different moving parts within this psychedelic community, as you mentioned, which is kind of super new. It's not, though, right? Like, I think when we had Matthew Johnson on, I even mentioned, like, we owe a ton to the underground um, movement and the clandestine chemists and all these people that were kind of keeping this thing alive, even after 1970, when they stopped a lot of the medical uh, tests and you know the war on drugs and all that kind of stuff. So I think we owe a ton to like you know like the Sasha Shulgins and all those types of people. Um, but when you look at you know how you get into these things, I think it's kind of personal too. Like I think everybody's kind of got a different story. I know Maurice and I when we were fourteen, fifteen, we were reading Electric Kool Aid Acid Test and reading about the Merry Pranksters and Ken Kesey and the LSD test that the government was doing, you know, all these different things and it kind of sparked our interest and we just kinda of got into it. Um but now I, I know it's more mainstream, so you have people just kind of jumping in. Uh but we actually had kind of like a like I said, like an interesting uh intro into it. Do you th- was that similar for you? Did you have kind of like a similar connection in that way or how did you first you know, how were you introduced to psychedelics? Yeah, it was really random. 15 years old uh, from, you know, rural Vermont, Stowe, Vermont, uh, was at a boarding school in Massachusetts, uh, was, became friends with people from New York City, found myself in New York City at, at the age of 15 at a nightclub, a big uh, debutante socialite kind of ball thing at the Palladium in New York City, the Palladium isn't there anymore. And someone had some acid in the bathroom and was like, here, take a, take a tab of this. And uh, and I was exposed to it in that setting. Not the greatest setting for that, obviously, but um, it was a really it was a really powerful experience. And uh, it opened my mind, like I said before. But I don't know if that's the best way people to get introduced to it, you know? Yeah, obviously now you want to talk to your doctor, depending on what medications you are and where your mental state's at. I mean... Back then when we were, you know, getting into this, as I just mentioned, the only thing real resource that we had was actually Irwid. We would go on Irwid and look up dosage and read the stories and uh, kind of take it from there. That was really the only way we could find out anything out about these substances. And um, I think now there's so many different resources. Uh, there's so many good people putting credible information out there. I think it's a little bit uh, easier to kind of jump in without a lot of the risks that a lot of you know, let's say 20 years ago when we first started doing it, you know, there was a ton of risk involved. We just didn't know. We just did it, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, some of those resources, I remember Arrowhead is still uh, very active. There was this uh, website, bluelight.org. There was the lyceum.org and Dance Safe was really big back in the 90s. Dance Safe, they would like check out your mm-hmm. MDMA, Molly pills, make sure it was, uh, 
make sure it was pure or not. And uh, it was a real harm reduction before its time. And, and there, was, there was a lot of resources. And now even more, you mentioned Sasha Shulgin. And of course, he's got those two books, um, Pikal and Tikal, which mm-hmm. is a, a real hardcore breakdown in the chemistry of all these different psychedelic compounds, many of which he created himself and tested himself with trusted others and wrote about the dosage and the effect. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of really good resources. Of course, you know, since the 90s, we've got the Internet. So there's a lot there's all kinds of access right now to to decent information. There's some junk out there, but there's way to, ways to sort through that and get access to really good information on on this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we were we were young and naive and a couple of real psychonauts. We would read all the different <laughs> compounds and like look at what the the trip reports were and be like, we want to try this one. And I was obviously you couldn't get your hands on certain things. Actually, we, Maurice still, and I still to this day have never tried DMT because 20 years ago it was kind of unheard of. I think I was offered it once at a fish show, but I didn't even know what was going on. So, but you look at yeah. now, it's like DMT is like one of the main psychedelics that everybody talks about. Obviously it's been popularized through podcasts and, you know, Joe Rogan talks about it a lot. There's a lot of podcasts and people making videos on it and stuff. But yeah, back then it was mostly psilocybin and LSD. Occasionally maybe some mescaline would come about or something like that. But, um, is, do you see, when you look at like the money making side of this, do you see that interrupting or, um, kind of, uh, really taking away from it? Or do you see that as like a positive in the sense that maybe like how the marijuana movements go where the more, the more money being made, the more it drives legalization in some aspects. Do you, you know, do you see any correlation there? Well, the, the uh, what's it called? Corporadelics? Corporadelics. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the psychedelic industry, uh, you know, the uh, the banter back and forth between Tim Ferriss and uh, Christian Angermeyer on social media around uh, intellectual property and the way this uh, this is going from a business standpoint, um, you know, big, big companies, Compass Pathways and all that kind of stuff. I, I see that I see the downside of that. I definitely see. um problems with the way money is poured into this and people investing who don't really know about what we're doing exactly except it's a way to make a lot of money on the other side it's it's fine you know we live in a capitalistic society and this is what we do as humans you talked earlier about making things complicated (laughs) that's another way we've made things complicated and Frankly, you know, money does drive some of this stuff and money is what's getting some of this uh, research done. And um, people are just going to try to capitalize on it. It's hard to demonize. It's really hard to demonize that. I I do think there's a real downside and there's real blind spots for people who are at that level of um, pushing these these uh, treatments and uh, these molecules. But hopefully there's enough good people and there's enough momentum moving in generally in a really healthy direction that we won't get too derailed by that. But I do foresee some problems with, um, with the money side of things. Yeah. I'm not a fan of the trying to, um, patent certain compounds or offshoot compounds or, um, different types of therapies, like, you know, specific aspects of it. I mean, I guess I get it, but I'm not a fan of that aspect of it, but, um, like I guess, I guess we'll just see where that goes. Um, when you look at the mind specifically, 
uh, in regards to psychedelics. Is there anything that interests you that maybe is a big unknown to you that you find that you investigate on your own that you find interesting? Um, it's also fascinating. I can't really pinpoint one thing. Uh, going back to your comment about DMT, I would say that I can remember when I was a kid, uh, I never did DMT, uh, but I did hear about it back then. And I heard what we heard was it's like living an entire lifetime in 10 minutes, mm. like time and space completely disappear and you feel like you've lived you know many many hours have passed and it's really only been like 10 minutes and it was kind of a scary thing and of course ayahuasca is dmt and that's been around for a long time um but right. it's really the uh and this goes back to your question one of the unknowns and i think is really promising and there's a lot of hype around it right now which is the toad uh, bufo alvarius 5meo dmt and that's a newer version of DMT. I mean, people really didn't discover that until maybe the late 80s. And even then, it was still vastly un, you know, unknown, unrecognized. It wasn't, I think, until about 2010, maybe the late, early 2010s, uh, teens or something like that, where uh, the synthesized version of 5-MEO, 5-methylene, how do you, well, I don't know what the chemical thing is. Matt Johnson knows it. Yeah, five, I think it's like 5-methoxy-dimethyltryptamine or something. Thank you. 5-methoxy-dimethyltryptamine. That, that is, I think, relatively unknown, extremely powerful, and really promising as a tool. So I'm hoping that that's going to, over the next three to five years, get a lot more traction in the research. Yeah, Hamilton Morris did an excellent episode. He he did an initial one where he thought he found the guy that discovered it by accident, and then he realized that guy was kind of taking him for a ride, and he found the real guy, this guy, uh, last name Nelson, I believe, uh, who discovered it, and he ended up getting um, some terminal disease later in his life, but he was able to interview him before the guy passed. So that, that was That's a good episode. People should check it out. Yeah, um, I he, watched that episode. I, I got the uh, the pamphlet. Yeah. You, you can buy a pamphlet for like uh, thirty five bucks that describes yeah. nice. describes it. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I like what he does. It's uh, you know, I like how he mixes too. He's willing to go to the Amazon and do ayahuasca ceremonies and treat these traditions and these rituals with respect, um, with respect for the indigenous cultures. But then he also does the hard science stuff too, because I feel like that's what interests me as well. Like I like the mystical and the ancient and talking about the Eleusinian mysteries and the ancient Amazon stuff and all that. But I also like the current science stuff too. So I, I really enjoy Hamilton's pharmacopoeia a lot. Um, what, uh, when you're talking about addiction, I, so I, again, I, I'll mention again, people are probably sick of this, but I have OCD and the way I look at it is like this mind, this like thought loop and you become addicted to thinking a certain way. Um, in the, the realm of psychology, is that considered similar, like, like, uh, OCD and addiction because you kind of are addicted, you're addicted to something. It's just a way of thinking. I mean, I would say no, I and mean, no. that's often a common misconception of addiction. There is that, there is that common thread though, what you said about being addicted to your thinking. And if you know a guy named Judson Brewer, who I'd highly recommend you have on your podcast, Dr. Judson Brewer is an MD, PhD researcher in mindfulness out of uh, 
out of uh, Massachusetts, and uh, he's written a book called the uh, the Craving Mind, and I think it's called the Craving Mind, and he also has an app called Unwinding Anxiety. But he does talk about like the primary addiction really is addiction to our thoughts, and that ties in with Buddhist Buddhist philosophy, and and it ties in with a lot of uh, William James and uh, other types of philosophers and and great thinkers that were really addicted to our thoughts. And so in that sense, addiction and OCD can be seen the same way. But phenomenologically, I think it's just a very different experience. There's there's plenty of people that have addiction that don't have OCD, and there's plenty of people that have OCD and that don't have addiction. So uh, there's the... There's some common pathway there, being addicted to our thoughts. We we are, as human beings, I think, have a vulnerability to getting stuck in habit loops and getting stuck in, in unhealthy patterns of thinking, unhealthy behaviors, whether it's due to trauma or some just glitch in our in our biology, in our psychology, in our social development or emotional processing. And uh, we're, we're very vulnerable to repeating really unhealthy patterns, whether it's in thoughts or behaviors or emotions. So in that sense, yes. But in the, in the more practical sense, we certainly don't treat addiction uh, the way we treat OCD, not, not necessarily uh, the same at all. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I had a little spurt of a couple years in my early 20s where I was using cocaine just a little too much. Uh, I wouldn't yeah. say I was full on like, oh my God, you know, I get, but it definitely was a problem. And um, I definitely saw some parallels, but there was some big differences too. And I think that when it's in the mind, it, it, that's the difference is one thing's in the mind and one thing's an external experience that, you know, you're kind of bringing on to yourself. So I would agree with uh, that sentiment. Um, what do you think the biggest um, challenges with using psychedelics and integrating it into the whole addiction therapy and all that? Well, I think there's always going to be people who um, will claim that you're just substituting one drug for another. You know, we, we've seen that with methadone and suboxone for opioid use disorder, that people make the argument you're just swapping one drug with another. You're just medicating yourself. You're not really getting to the root of the problem. You're just taking a drug to to try to feel better. and um, you know, I can't disagree with that more, especially when it comes to psychedelics. It's such a different kind of experience. And I think I think the other problem that we're going to see is that, you know, I've seen this. I've actually seen this in some of the groups that I'm part of where people put a lot of expectations on psychedelics to like blow their mind and sort of rid them of their addiction. I'm just going to go and have a, a flood dose of Ibogaine down in Mexico, or I'm going to take a really high dose of psilocybin and, and that's going to cure me from my cocaine or my, my tobacco addiction or my alcohol use disorder. And, you know, a lot of people are sorely disappointed that they, they, you know, might be, their minds might be blown for a few days or a week or two, or maybe a month, but then they go back to their drug of choice or their addiction or their addictive behavior. And so there's a there can be a big letdown. I think people forget that these are just tools. We still have to do the work of recovery, whether we're recovering from depression, we're recovering from anxiety, we're recovering from alcohol, drugs. Like we have to do the work of that integration. We can't just get, you know, trip our faces off and have these powerful mystical experiences and then think 
that's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm cured. I, I, you know, I saw God and God said, stop using alcohol. And, mm. and that was it. You know, I mean, that does happen for some people for sure, but there's work to be done. People have to integrate. People need to impl- implement new tools and new, new strategies to, to live a healthy life afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you missed one recovery and that's recovery from being an asshole because, uh, even people that do use psychedelics, re- you know, regularly, You'd be surprised, like online, how many trolls and just pieces of shit there are. Just, you know, like, how can you use these compounds and just be such a low-life scumbag? I mean, there's so many of them. I'm shocked. And and that's what you mentioned about, like, you know, it's not a, a, a silver bullet or, you know, a miracle pill. You do have to put in the work. You do have to do the... Um, you know, like I said, for me, it was CBT therapy, but I guess it's different from every, you know, for everybody. Um, would you see CBT... Do you think CBT is like a... Like, how do you view that? Is that a super helpful tool in your opinion? Do you use that a lot? Yeah, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is a well-researched, very practical model of working with all kinds of conditions, whether it's depression or anxiety or addiction. It's very practical. It's very down-to-earth. It's it's a very easy easy to research, so there's plenty of data to show that it's, it's effective for a number of conditions. But I'm also somebody who believes that no one size fits all, mm. and CBT really does not work for some people. Some people... Mm-hmm. Um, resent getting homework assignments from their therapist. Some people right. aren't ready, really, in a place to um, put the work into CBT. CBT takes a lot of work, and uh, it can be extremely useful. But if someone's not ready to really, you know, dig deep and and do these exercises, uh, and and I also think there's something a little bit sterile about CBT for some for some people. A lot of people want to follow like a manual. Or, you know, just hand out worksheets and say, you know, have you worked on this worksheet or let's let's go through this chart together. And I think that sometimes can dehumanize the therapy process some people really just want to really just want to process what's going on. And they don't want to be interrupted by uh, too much structure. There's a lot of structure behind CBT. Mm-hmm. I love CBT in terms of its philosophy and bring be able to bring those tools into therapy, like pick and choose like an automatic thought log or relaxation techniques, you know, pulling in some tools, but not practicing CBT as a standalone. That's just me, my personal preference. Um, I really appreciate it as a, as a tool, as a, as a resource, but I, but I don't think it's for everybody and, um, and it can get sterile. Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. Actually, when I was still going to therapy in person, um, the guy I was seeing was like a former priest, you know, we would talk about philosophy and like, you know, theories of everything kind of just, you know, here and there. Um, but when we got into the CBT, you know, he's like, you know, I want you to journal your, how you feel in certain moments when these things are happening. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I have a really good memory. So I just kind of threw them in, you know, the back of my mind and then I would bring them up and we did it that way. But you're right. I think that there's a lot of people that don't want to like sit there and make a journal all day about how they feel and then bring it in there. And I don't necessarily think you should either. Like you're mentioning, it it becomes kind of like monotonous. And as much as you want to probably help yourself and you want them to help you, I think that there's probably better avenues if it's, if it's, that's not something that you're into for sure. Um, what do you think is, um, uh, what's like an alternative to CBT if, if that doesn't take hold? Like, is there something else that you, you like as a technique or, 
Yeah, I'm sort of, I'm, let me just uh, do something here. I'm sort of an eclectic therapist. And I, what I mean by that is like I draw on a bunch of different uh, philosophy or approaches. One thing that uh, has been pretty widely studied and doesn't get a lot of uh, press, so to speak, is, is what's called um, interpersonal psychodynamic psychotherapy. So in interpersonal therapy, you're really sort of in the room with the person and diving deep into the into the moment with what that experience is like in the room with the person or over over zoom with the person uh in a very interpersonal way so that the therapist and the patient become this unique dyad and you can dissect what the experience is like between the two of you in an interpersonal format and that's been widely studied as being very effective if you can practice it in a in a skillful way. So interpersonal therapy is one of my favorite therapies. And, um, and gosh, there's a lot of other ones now too. I mean, what in speaking of psychedelics, there's, there's two or three practices or models that, that really fit nicely with the psychedelic therapy model. And those three are, internal family systems model, which was uh, developed by Dick Schwartz or Richard Schwartz. There's the acceptance and commitment therapy model, that's uh, ACT, ACT, which is really kind of this interesting Buddhist uh, cognitive behavioral and, and interpersonal kind of model all blended together. And then there's EMDR. Have you guys heard of EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing? Yeah, I've heard of it. Is that, how does that work? So w the reason why that fits with um, with psychedelic therapy is because um, EMDR is basically bilateral stimulation. So you can either have tapping on both sides or your eyes are going back and forth while you have an image of a trauma or some image of an experience in your mind. And there's something about the bilateral stimulation, whether it's tapping or eye movement or, or even in your ears where you have these binaural beats in your ears. And there's something about that that then triggers a sort of a cascade of associations in your mind. And it's really fascinating that you start to make these weird associations that you normally wouldn't make, like with your with your head. And uh, it just becomes this, this surreal kind of experience. And it's kind of like a psychedelic experience where you start to have these associations or new memories or new ideas come up. And uh, it's a really practical way of working with trauma and other conditions to help people get unblocked. Mm. Yeah, again, I had a, I, I had a, go ahead. Go, go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, I have a quick question for you. Do you think that uh, all humans have to be addicted to something in the sense that some people get addicted to good things, working out or work, you know? You know, I, I, I do a lot of, like, photography and things like that, and I would consider myself addicted in the sense that I would have to pick up the camera at least every other day or I would, I would, I would, I would crave it. Um, so do you think people need an addiction in their life? And that's why you see so many people going to things like drugs and alcohol, because if they don't find that positive addiction in their life, that, that fill, fills that addiction void within. Do people need to have an addiction? I love the question, and it brings up a, one of my favorite quotes from Dr. Gabor Mate, who's really uh, popular right now. You've probably heard of Gabor Mate. He wrote the book uh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and he has a quote 
that says the difference between passion and addiction is that between a spark that inspires and a flame that incinerates. And, mm. uh, you know, it's basically like you can have a passion for photography, Maurice, or you can have a, we can have passions for things which may seem like an addiction. Like I have to go for a run or I have to go get my camera and, and do this thing. And usually that's like a passion. People have a passion for that. If your photography or if your workout regimen or anything that you might do may starts to really impair certain areas of your life, like you're gonna get a divorce because you have more of an attachment to your camera than you do to working on your 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 marriage, or um, or you're you're spending all your money on camera equipment and you've gone broke and now you have to file bankruptcy because of your your camera your photography addiction. That's that's more an addiction than a than a passion, and there's a fine line there, obviously. But I think we all are wired for addiction, and it's just a sort of a fine line. Like who, who's going to go down that road of like finding a passion or finding something they really like to do, and it becoming a really destructive force, versus the person who finds something they really love to do and keeps it healthy and really life promoting and and personally satisfying. It's a tough call. I actually think that ties back to my initial question too about us becoming apex predators of the world and having all the time and space. And now beyond that, we even have technology now, which is doing stuff for us. So not only do we not have to go kill, you know, saber tooth tigers to stay alive or, uh, you know, whatever, uh, woolly mammoths or whatever, we now have all the time, you know, to, to do what we want for the moment. I mean, yeah, we work and whatever, but there's a lot of downtime too. And on top of that, now we have technology, which is starting to take hold even more and more where there's going to be a lot more free time. So I think it's us trying to deal with that aspect where it's like, where do we fit in now that we've created this thing? It's almost like a machine. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. I think there's a lot of people also, I think in the psychedelic world that believe that psychedelics might be a ticket out of that, uh, those trappings, you know, what it, what it means to be human and addicted to, to uh, technology, to uh, becoming, you know, having become these apex predators. And, you know, is it, are psychedelics a ticket out of that where we sort of rebalance ourselves and rebalance the planet um, in, in harmony, you know, and, and collaboration and co-creation rather than taking over the world and destroying it? Um, you know, it, it does speak to that larger question i don't know if i'm quite as um rosy-eyed about that uh with with psychedelics but there's there's potential there like you said there's a lot of assholes there's a lot of people who use a lot of psychedelics and it doesn't doesn't they they're still assholes you know Mm. so um you know that right there would suggest that it, it might not be psychedelics that bring us there there may be some side effect of psychedelics that could help bring us there but the psychedelics themselves aren't aren't necessarily the panacea that some people think think they are okay so now this this is a big one and i just want your opinion obviously there's no real answer but um what do you think's going on with psychedelic entities Um, because even though i've never done dmt i have experienced entities on high high doses of dried psilocybin and uh MDMA high doses and and stuff like that. Uh, What do you think is going on? Because obviously everybody's heard about the DMT machine elves and Terrence McKenna. And then, you know, you have Joe Rogan talking about it all the time. What do you think that that's almost like a, you know, 
some Jungian things, some sort of subconscious thing that we're having a conversation with ourselves? Or do you think that that's possibly some something external that we're just not aware of? Like, where do you stand on that? Because I know like the more mystical take is that they're external and we can't see and know everything. So there's possibly something else going on. But then you have the more logical people saying that this is, you know, just a manifestation of our mind or we're having a conversation with ourselves, that kind of a thing. So it's a hard question to answer. I think that, you know, you get someone like Matt Johnson or other kind of more scientifically minded people, they'll give you a very practical answer. And that and the way I think Matt in particular, Dr. Johnson in particular, and some of his colleagues speak on this particular subject, they do so with an eloquence and a nuance that I don't think I can I can uh, quite capture the way they do. But I, I tend to be the kind of person that can appreciate the scientific explanation for machine elves and the scientific explanation for entities if you wanted to sort of look at it maybe as being some sort of biomedical biochemical process that when you tap these receptors in a certain way that these are very common responses and that's all they are but i i tend to be sort of a believer in things i'm i'm open minded and and you know, one thing that I think, two things from actually from one from the research that I've looked at, and then one from a book that I read recently. Um, have you guys ever heard of Rachel Yehuda? Who's a she's a um, a researcher in trauma and basically the epigenetics of trauma. What that means is that basically she found in her research that the offspring of Holocaust survivors have DNA imprinting of tr- the trauma of their parents. So there's something about our genes that I believe have embedded within them some kind of consciousness or some sort of experience going back centuries. And, um, you know, her research on epigenetics and trauma is sort of bearing that out. And then there's the book um, LSD in the Mind of the Universe by Chris Bache. I don't know if you've heard of. Yeah, that Chris just Bache. came out within the last few years, right? Yeah, LSD in the mind of the universe. Now, this guy chronicled 73 high-dose LSD trips over the course of 20 years, and Mm. he chronicled them them meticulously, and he wrote a book about his experiences on 600 mics of LSD. Each time he did 600 mics, he did it in the same room with the same music, with the same person holding space, 73 times over 20 years, and... You know, some of the stuff he writes about, you can't make this shit up. I mean, he really he really had so many experiences where you got to wonder, like, what's going on with these substances and potentially tapping into some consciousness that exists in our DNA, that exists in our in our energy somehow, that's in the energy in the world somehow, that we're tapping into some of that. Right. Um, you know, I'm a believer in that. I frankly am. I know there's no real good scientific explanation for it, but there's some... You know, that epigenetic stuff and and the ancestral trauma stuff, that's really, to me, that that says there's something there. No, look, we, we like to get woo on here. Obviously, we, oh, yeah. we balance it all out. We do a little woo. We do a little science. You know, we do a little bit of everything. But, yeah, I mean, it just makes you think, too, somebody like uh, some of the mystics, you know, like, a, you know, Edgar Cayce or Rudolf Steiner, somebody that's able able to like think about like past lives or something like that. It kind of what you're saying, it kind of makes you think. And I have actually thought about what you're saying in terms of, you know, in that regard too. like, could this be some other version of us or some past 
not life, but like somebody, you know, that you've inherited, like you said, kind of genetics or something along those lines, or maybe it has something to do like some collective kind like we're all somehow connected in some way. So we're able to tap into some weird, you know, aspect of that. So yeah, I, I like your answer and I don't think there's anything wrong with being a believer sometimes. And I think that, you know, to, have to to be happy in this day and age and not be depressed all the time you know if you're a dog you know a dogmatic uh, nihilist or you know like a richard dawkins or somebody like that that's it's you can tell like when he talks it's like depressing it's like i don't even want to listen to this guy you know like there's some there's there's something there that like i think we're inherently geared towards like the mysteries of life and trying to figure out the meaning of life and our purpose and where we fit in with everything and i think if you lose that and just think, oh, this is all there is. Everything's material and we die and then that's it. I think that there's something inherently depressing about that. And I think that when you look at the state of the world, you know, there's a, religions kind of on the outs in some regards. And, you know, I think people are really looking for different things to kind of latch on to, you know. And I think whether it's like uh, believing in UFOs or, you know, this new age spirituality stuff or whatever it is, I think that it's filling you know, the gaps, you know, of what we're missing, you know, in that regard. And I think psychedelics for me has kind of filled that void. And I told Maurice, we did an episode where we talked about our first trips and the trip report. I felt like I was raised Catholic and went to Catholic schools early in my life. Um, and I never felt any connection to any sort of God or creator. It just was like, like a habit, you know, or like going through the motions. And then when I had my first psilocybin experience, I'm like, this is this is what I've been missing. This is something metaphysical. This is this other thing. And I think that, like I said, I think for me that that's the case. Um, so yeah, I, I like your perspective on that. And hopefully we can get to a place as a society where we, we find the magic again. So um, yeah, I mean, my experience, my experience was, and I think I'd said this earlier, but because of my use of LSD when I was a kid, that did open me up to the idea that there may in fact be some sort of collective consciousness. And I understood that might be just the byproduct of the drug, but I was really convinced, excuse me, that there was something else going on here. And, you know, I credit my receptivity to, and this may be controversial for some people, but my receptivity to getting into recovery and being exposed to um, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous at a young age. And a lot of people rail against Alcoholics Anonymous because it's got this these religious references, references to God and powerlessness and surrender and turning it over. And, you know, um, it's got this moral quality to it. But I wasn't raised with any religion. When I took LSD and I realized there may be actually something more to life than just what meets the eye, so to speak, um, you know, people talk about that in in AA, people who, who have um, experiences with alcohol or drugs where they really kicks their ass and they're like, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this alone. I can turn to other people. I can turn to some some entity or something out there has kept me alive through all of my addictive behaviors. I didn't keep myself alive. I don't know how it happened. And so people turn to this idea of a higher power. I was able to sort of access some version of that for myself because I knew it wasn't, we were all connected, you know, there is a collective conscious. I mean, I felt as though there was a collective consciousness and I got to see some of that in, in 12 step programs. And I think there's, there's a real, actually a recent paper that came out and saying that 
there's a real synergy between 12-step recovery processes and psychedelic medicines to help um, help either achieve sobri- sobriety or recovery or stay in recovery. So, and I think it's because of that mystical quality. And in fact, Bill Wilson, who is one of the co-founders of AA, experimented with LSD when it was being researched in the 50s and early 60s. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely, you know, when we started this podcast like four years ago, I was going through a sort of a spiritual awakening and I've never felt better and more alive in my life. My OCD was nominal, you know, at worst. And, uh, you know, I've gone through some issues since then, but yeah, I mean, there's something to be said about believing or taking that weight off your shoulders and putting it on something else. And people can talk shit about that all day, you know, like, Oh, you believe in this or you believe, but there's something helpful about that. And I don't think we really understand the mind and consciousness enough to, pick that apart and replace it with something as useful or better. Um, so, uh, so let's, let's, we're going to wrap it up here in like five or 10 minutes, but I wanted to talk a little bit about fish since, uh, I know some of our tweets on, uh, where we were going back forth early on, uh, talking about fish shows. And I think you asked some question about, uh, psychedelic playlists and I responded any fish or something like that. Um, so you, you were able to see fish in the early days when, you know, you had machine gun tray and uh, they, <laughs> they were just killing it, you know, and now they're a little bit older. It's a little bit more dad rock, but they're still pretty phenomenal in my opinion compared to a lot of the other musicians uh, out there creating new music. But um, what was that like in the early days on tour? Um, was it, was there a different vibe than now? So I saw fish in the UVM cafeteria in 1990. Uh, I think it was, yeah, it was, it was 19, the fall of 1990 in the U, in one of the UVM cafeterias with probably about 50 people there. Nice. I know they were playing, playing at Nectar's uh, at that point. I saw them, I saw them in the, at the Flynn theater on May 18th, 1992 to a packed house of 3000 people. I did see them open for Santana and Stowe in 1992, um, and I saw them after I got sober. I actually went back and saw them at Sugarbush, which is a local ski area here. Um, saw that show in 1994, and um, I am a big fan of Fish. I haven't seen them. I didn't see what the Watkins Glen stuff and the Great Went and all the other big shows that they did. Yeah, we went to um, it. That was actually the only time I've ever been to Vermont is when we went to the It Festival. Oh, that's not in that's not in No, Vermont. I know, but on the way we drove through Vermont. That's the only time oh, I've been okay. to Vermont. You've got to go, you know, through there to get to Maine. But we uh I think we stopped in Mount Pelier, had a nice little lunch, some some sort of uh culinary experiment where students were cooking meals and they cooked like we had like lobster tail for like super cheap because there were students making it. And then we got all the way to the festival, the It Festival in Maine and uh yeah, that's the only fish festival I've been to, but it was phenomenal. That was like our, the end of our, that was after senior year in high school. And we took this kind of like a, a voyage and took like 18, 19 hours to get there from Detroit. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we, we, we've only seen them since then pretty much. And you saw them until then probably. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the scenes changed even since we've been fans of fish. It's, you know, the lot's a little bit different. You get a little bit of different crowd, a lot more new people. And now that the music's changed a little bit, you know, you got the old, the old heads with their kids now and stuff like that. But, um, what was the, in terms of like psychedelic, was there a lot of like, obviously you always have shakedown with, you know, the Grateful Dead and Fish and all the jam bands, 
was there a lot of that happening in the early days with around the band happening, you know, 92, 93 and stuff? Totally. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I was definitely on all kinds of substances at, uh, the fish shows that I went to before 1992 and, uh, LSD and mushrooms were a big, big part of that for sure. So that was definitely alive and well back then actually sort of related, but my, I realized two years ago, someone was posting on Facebook. Um, my mom contributed a thousand dollars to bring fish to play for the 1988, uh, high school graduation of Stowe high school. Nice. That's awesome. So that goes back a ways. And I didn't realize my mom had had any idea what she was supporting at the time, but uh, (laughs) that's awesome. Yeah. 88. Yeah. Go ahead, sir. I was gonna say, what was the sentiment in like when you're seeing them at the uh, University of Vermont? What do you guys do? You know that there's something here. Do you feel that these guys are gonna become the the size of band that they've became, or it, are you just kind of enjoying the moment as it is? So two things. One is I was wasted and I didn't know what I was doing. But my friend dragged me to the cafeteria to, and we didn't have tickets and we broke in and got to see the show. And two, um, there was definitely a lot of energy around them at the time. This was 1990 on campus, and there was a lot of buzz going on about Fish at that time. So definitely could tell there's something happening with this band. Wow, be interesting to go back in those times, wouldn't it, Michael? What what do you think the connection is between, because there's always been that psychedelic component in the lot and then connected to the music and people want to sit, you know, like in Bittersweet Motel, you have that guy and they're in Europe and it's 97. He's like, they're like, what is is, what's the connection with, you know, I think it's Todd Phillips asking the guy and he's like, you know, what's the connection between fish and drugs? He's like, I like to see fish sober. You know, some of my best shows are sober, but in reality, we all know that that's not always the case. And some of, you know, my more you know, interesting experiences and shows have involved uh, psychedelic experiences connected with the music. So do you think that goes all the way back to like the dead and the acid tests and then that culture carrying over? Or do you think it's just something that has to do with like intricate instrumental improvisational music? I don't know. It's a good question. I think it's a little bit of both. I really think that there's something about that kind of music, that intricacy and the way it flows that lends itself to this sort of egalitarian, sort of harmonious, you know, fun-loving uh, vibe that you get at these shows when you're when you're hanging out, whether you're tripping or not, whether you're stoned or not, it can be a really positive, positive vibe. But I think there's there definitely was some carryover from, you know, the '60s and '70s with the Dead, and and that was that was very clear. Cause I was seeing I was seeing Fish at the same time that I was seeing the Dead, so I could actually you know, see that there was a lot of similarities in the, in the people and the vibe. Um, actually I, I saw, I saw them play at Beaver Creek in 1992 and I was on eight and a half grams of mushrooms at the time. And oh, I nice. could not like, it hit me within 10 minutes and I could not for the life of me, they started playing bouncing around the room. So they're in the front of this, this conference center jumping on the trampolines and I was just like, I need to sit down and I went outside and sat down for like an hour. Cause I just had to regroup. But that show was, that show was fantastic. Yeah. I secretly DM'd you uh, and told you about my MDMA at a 2000 and I don't even know, was it 2016, 2017 fish show? Yeah, I kind of had like a little bit of a freak out. 
Um, and I don't want to ever trip at a show again now. So I, I, most shows I go to now are, or shows that I've been to since I have been clean or maybe just hitting the vape or smoking a joint or something like that. Uh, it's just, it's just not something I, I feel like I get more out of it alone anyways. So there's just really no, and I've done the other thing I've experienced it. So, uh, but yeah, I think that there's definitely an evolution that happens too with psychedelics where, when you're younger, I feel like you're more apt to do it in groups and with friends and whatever. And then, you know, there's been some weird, weird experiences too. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but almost like if you do it with friends when you're younger, you, there's like sides taken. You feel like maybe you become a little bit, um, paranoid in some regards, like how your friends perceive you and how you perceive your friends. And there's like things, if you're ever doing it in groups, there's like things like, little clicks that you know offshoots that happen i don't know have you ever experienced something like that well my experience was uh, was not unique in some ways but i um i just i kind of my drug use kind of got pretty um my alcohol and drug use got pretty uh bad in the sense that um those kinds of social nuances I don't think I was aware of. I was mm. just getting fucked up all the time. I okay. was drinking a lot every night. I was taking a lot of acid pretty regularly, and I started to get into cocaine and some other substances. And I didn't really give a shit about myself or anything else. So um, I, I things got pretty dark there. I mean, this was I was young. I got I got sober when I was twenty. So okay. like eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Like my my social life and everything. It was just it was all just around like getting fucked up like all the time. So, um, those kinds of nuances around getting paranoid and stuff. I was, I was pretty wasted most of the time. For those yeah. I would, I, and I guess the better thing, I wouldn't say paranoid now that I'm thinking it's more of like a lifting of the veil on your true, your friendship with that person and realizing truly maybe a piece of who you are, who they are. And do you really even have connection? And like, this guy's kind of a piece of shit or this guy does this. And I don't even, you know, why am I friends with this person kind of a thing? And you realize it in that moment, which is kind of traumatic when you're that age and you are close with somebody. So I guess that's kind of what I meant. And, um, I don't know. I just remember having some of those experiences in uh, high school and early college and just that kind of turning me off from wanting to do it around, you know, people that I'm close with. So. Yeah, I mean, when I got sober, I know that you really find out who your friends are. Some of the some of the people were lifelong friends. They're always going to be friends whether they were partying or not. Like they were just like from elementary school, from high school, like close friends. And then there were other people who you think were friends, and then you get sober, you change your life around, and it's like there's nothing. You don't really have that much in common with them anymore. They right. were just someone you got fucked up with or whatever. So that definitely was something that I was exposed to more after I got after I got sober. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's wrap it up here. Um, but I definitely want to have you back on again in the future. This was awesome. Lots of good insights. And uh, if anybody's interested, I'll add the link down below. But he's on Twitter. So go check Rick out on there. He does some awesome cliff backflips, which, you know, I've seen a couple of those. I'm like, wow, that's that's some uh, that's some risky business. But I, it's entertaining to watch. Um, but uh, yeah, go check him out on Twitter. And I have the link down below to the, his recovery center. And, uh, you know, it's not just addiction to opioids or whatever there's sex addiction there's gambling he's got everything on there so anything you can pretty much get addicted to he's pretty much on top of it so uh but thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights and your work and your opinions and uh, like i said we'll definitely get you back on in the future 
I really enjoyed it. I hope your listeners get something out of it. And if you want to invite me back, I'd be delighted. It's really fun talking yeah. about these subjects. They're near and dear to my heart, both personally and professionally. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about this stuff with you guys. Sweet. Absolutely. Yeah, we'd love to have you back for sure. All right. Before we get out of here, everybody head on over again to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. For just $2 a month, you'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. We have a bunch of stuff on there, so go check it out, especially specifically psychedelic episodes. Maybe next time we get Rick on, we'll do a Patreon with him as well uh, and go even deeper. So go check that out. And one more time before we get out of here, head on over to injurasweb.org. This is the social media platform we created to connect open minds. So whether you're talking about philosophy, metaphysics, ancient civilizations, uh, gnosis, spirituality, psychedelics, whatever it is, it's the perfect place to theorize hypothesize hypothesize speculate so go on over there set up a profile we are still working on trying to get it in the app store so uh hold tight on that and again thank you so much rick and uh again we will have you back on in the future so uh everybody stay safe out there we love you and we will catch you next time peace peace